Let's open our Bibles to Luke 23. We'll be examining the passage uh, Luke 23 verses 32 through 43 today. And in our encounter series, we just have a couple more weeks left in this series. I thought it'd be fruitful for us to at some point to examine the encounter that Jesus has with two unlikely men in, in a very unlikely place. And these men are thieves, and the location for this encounter will be on the cross. And what we'll see today is that even at the point of death, moments before his death, as he hung on the cross, Jesus is still a soul winner, and he's still saving souls. These uh, two men really represent all of us. And you will either identify with one of the thieves today, or you will represent, uh, be identified with one of the other thieves and as we go through this passage today, the question you'll have to answer before the Lord is which one of these thieves best represents you? This passage is so wonderful. It could be broken down in three separate sections. I put them in your bulletin. First, we have the crucifixion and the company in verses 32 through 33. If you like to take notes, there's going to be a lot of opportunity today to take notes. A lot of amazing points and facts from this passage. The second section or unit, if you will, is the intercession and the insults. This is found in verses 34 through 39. And then the third and final section of the sinner and the savior, verses 40 through 43. We'll just take this one unit at a time, verse by verse, as we do each week, to hear how the Lord uh, speaks to us today from his word. First, we have the crucifixion and the company. Beginning in verse 32, we read, two others who were criminals, were led away to be put to death with him. The Romans were preparing for a crucifixion. And the, the preparations would begin the night before, and there were three men who were to be crucified, three criminals. But the night before, Jesus' name was not on the list to be crucified. In fact, the man who was to be on the list, we don't know the two criminals' names, but we know the man's, the ringleader's name is Barabbas. Barabbas was to be crucified, and as Jesus was uh, the night before the crucifixion having his last supper, we can only imagine that these criminals were in prison having their last supper as well, knowing that in the morning they would be uh, awakened and taken to their crucifixion. Jesus, who knew no sin and committed no crime, took the place of a very wicked man whose name was Barabbas. This is one of the most clearest, concisest picture of the gospel. That Jesus would take the place of a wicked man on the cross, a place that he did not deserve to be. And physically, Jesus took Barabbas' place, but spiritually, he took your place and my place. That Jesus would bear the wrath of God poured out on him to satisfy God's wrath that was intended for all sinners, intended for you and me. Barabbas will go free. Jesus will suffer in his place. Jesus was crucified with two criminals. And this was to fulfill the prophecy that's found in Isaiah 53, 12, which tells us that the Messiah would be numbered with the transgressors. How would that even be possible? That the Messiah would be, would be uh, among these sinners and transgressors, that the holy would be with the unholy. That the one who gave us the law would be with the lawless ones. Jesus does this by becoming sin for us on the cross. And that prophecy, was, which sounds impossible, was written 700 years before the crucifixion. Notice the detail here that we're given in verse 33. We're given the, the place 
and the position that Jesus had in this crucifixion. And this is a very significant detail that we can't overlook because all four gospel writers tell us the exact same detail. Why? Why would all four gospel writers tell us this detail? Verse 33 tells us this. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. First we have the place, and then we have the position, if you notice. The first uh, place is called the place of the skull. In Aramaic, uh, this word is Golgotha. In Latin, it's Calvaria, which is where we get the word Calvary, which means the skull. And then in Greek, we get the, the English word cranium from the Greek word. In each of these words, uh, the word from cranium and Calvaria and Golgotha, they all mean the place of the skull. No other detail is given. We're not really sure what this means, but in the ancient world, the people would have exactly known this place. They could take you there and show you the place of the skull because it would have been a popular place. Everyone would have known this is the place. And then we're told the position. There they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Historians tell us that when there are three crosses, the Romans were uh, traditionally would put the, the most violent criminal in the middle. And they did this so people passing by would know who to hurl their insults at the most. They would insult all the people being crucified, but especially the one who hung in the middle. That place was intended for the notorious villain Barabbas. This is already uh, shameful to be crucified. That's a very public death. But to be crucified in the, in the middle magnified the shame of the person who was being crucified. They were the worst of the worst, the lowest of the lowest. You think the guy on the middle left and right is bad, well, you should see the guy in the middle. That's the picture that the Romans wanted to present. And to add insult to injury to Jesus's pain and his agony and his shame, they put him in the middle between two thieves. And they also nailed a sign to his, his cross, the scriptures tell us. The sign is going to say Jesus is the king of the Jews, that that's his crime. Pilate hated the Jews and they hated Pilate. And he wanted to shame all the Jews by saying, this is your king. He's not just being crucified, but he's being crucified in the middle position. And for Pilate to do that was showing how much disdain he had for the Jews. To put this sign that says king of the Jews, that drove the, the Jewish leaders crazy. They were infuriated. In John 19, 21 through 22, we read this. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate gave the famous line, what I have written, I have written. It is a decisive answer. Pilate is not changing his course. There's direction for anyone, especially the chief priests, because he wanted all people to know what he thought of their king and what the Roman government thinks of their king. This was an absolute insult to Judaism. Jesus was born among the beasts of the field. And here he, we see that he will die among the beasts of men, criminals. And now we see the next section, verses 33, 34 through 39, the intercession and the insults. How could the two possibly go together? Intercession and insults? But it shows us the heart of our Savior. A heart of compassion and mercy and forgiveness. Look at what Jesus prays as he hangs on the cross in verse 34. 
Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them. Forgive them. If, I, if that was me or you, we'd probably pray, Father, strike them with lightning. Father, strike them dead right where they are. How dare they put nails in the hands and the feet of the Son of God. Jesus came on a mission to show his love, to ransom them from their sins. And this is how they repay him. They crucify him. And Jesus prays, forgive them. And then he says, for they know not what they do. Jesus is showing great compassion. Jesus spoke seven times from the cross. This is one of those times. A prayer to the Father on behalf of those who are crucifying him, that they would be forgiven. Jesus knows that there is something greater being accomplished there at the cross. And those who are crucifying have no idea. He is crucified by false accusations by the Jews and at the hands of the Romans. It was the Jews and the Gentiles who crucified Christ. The whole world is guilty. Jesus' eyes were not on what was happening there. His eyes were focused on the Father's plan to redeem, redeem souls. A payment of a perfect, sinless man had to be made, and Jesus was the only one who fit that criteria. He is the Lamb of God. What is he paying for? He's paying for their sins, and he asked for forgiveness of their sins. Jesus models for all of his followers. Listen carefully, friends. Jesus models for all of his followers how we are to respond when someone wrongs us. Who has wronged you in your life? Maybe that wronging has gone back decades and you haven't forgiven that person. Jesus was crucified and he prays for forgiveness for that, those people who are crucifying him. In Matthew 18, 21 through 22, we read this. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will, will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus says to him, no, I, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. This is hyperbole. This is when Jesus would exaggerate a number or a, an emphasis to make a point. And what he's saying is you are to forgive your brother countless times. And here we see a very important principle that surfaces often. And why does it surface often? Because we need to hear it often that forgiven people forgive people. And if you have been forgiven your sins by Jesus Christ, and you are called to forgive those who've wronged you, and if you're not able to forgive someone of their sins, then maybe your sins have not been forgiven. What is holding you back today? Is it your pride and ego? Because when we are not forgiving other people, we're not holding them in bondage. We're holding ourselves in bondage. And you could be liberated today from the bondage of unforgiveness by forgiving those who've, who've offended you. Jesus forgives those who crucified him. And it's tempting to say, well, Jesus, you don't really know what that person's done for me, done against me in my life. Well, did they crucify you? Jesus was crucified and he was praying for forgiveness for those who did that to him. Everything else that happens in your life and my life is under the category of crucifixion, isn't it? We are called to forgive. Who must you forgive today? We see in here also that the Son of God, as he's praying, that the Roman guards are dividing his clothing amongst themselves. His clothing? These are his last earthly possessions. As if it can't get worse, they're, they're fighting over his clothes like dogs. And then we read here, they cast lots to divide his garments. This was to fulfill another prophecy. As written in Psalm 22, 16 through 18, we read this, for dogs encompass me. This would be Jesus' thoughts written a thousand years as he hangs on the cross. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircle me. 
They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among themselves. And for my clothing, they cast lots. The prophecies in the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures about the Messiah are like a unique fingerprint that can only belong to one person. And they match Jesus' fingerprints. Jesus is the Messiah. Of all the hundreds of prophecies about the Messiah, Jesus fulfills every single one. And God did this so that all the people of the world would know this is the Messiah. As Jesus is falsely accused and as if that wasn't bad enough, he was being placed in the center. As if that wasn't bad enough, people are fighting over all his clothing. And now look what happens next, verse 35. We're going to begin a list of those who were insulting him. The, the situation just gets worse and worse for Jesus, more humiliating, more humbling, and lower and lower he descends below all of humanity. Verse 35 says, and all the people stood by watching. Luke was gracious to say that about these people. He writes that they're standing by watching, but there's another group that wasn't just standing by watching. Matthew records in Matthew 27, 39, and 40, he says, and those who passed by derided him. They were insulting him. Those travelers who were passing by, they were insulting him. And this word to deride in the Greek language is blasphemeo. Does that sound familiar? That's where we get the English word blasphemy. To insult God, to say false things and speak profane, profane things about God. That's what they were doing. The crucifixion would have been at ground level. So people walking by on a sidewalk could go right by the, those who were being crucified. And it was a sign to them that you don't mess with Rome. You don't mess with the Roman government. You don't mess with Pilate or Caesar or else this could happen to you. Matthew writes that the people who passed by wagged their heads. They shook their heads and saying, who, uh, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from there if you are. If you are the son of God, they were challenging the identity of Christ. They were challenging the power of Christ. But it wasn't just the people walking by who were scoffing at him and hurling insults. Look what the next word says in this passage. But the rulers, the rulers scoffed at him too. The Jewish leaders, the ones that people looked to for, for direction and leadership in their, in their faith, they were insulting the son of God. At the highest level, this word for insult means to belittle. To insult, to, to make him feel very small. Everyone was get, getting in on the tearing down Jesus train, if you will. They all wanted a part of it. At his most vulnerable time in his earthly life, Jesus dying for the sins of the world, rather than hearing the praise and worship of man, he was hearing their insults, their disgrace. Here he is reconciling them. He's, he's providing a door he is the door for people to be reconciled to God, and they are insulting him. And look what they're saying. He saved himself. Let him save himself. Or he saved others. Let him save himself. They're, again, they're acknowledging his works and his power as he walked the earth, but they're denying his power as he hangs on the cross. They think that the cross, by some way, is limiting his power. And here they, these leaders just insult him, they attack him, his identity, and then they say next, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one, let him save himself. They're all saying the same thing. Then we're told another group, verse 36, they want to jump in on insulting Jesus. First we have those who are passing by, then we have the religious leaders, 
And now we're told a third group, the soldiers. Oh, yes, the Roman soldiers. Now the Gentiles will get in on the action. They also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Are you seeing the pattern here? Verse 38 tells us, there was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. This was written in three different languages, the three most popular languages of the day to make sure everyone who was walking by would be able to read it in their own language to make no mistake that Jesus is the king of the Jews. All these different people groups are mocking Jesus. And, and then you think, well, how could things get worse? Uh, Jesus is being mocked by the crowd. He's being mocked by those who pass by and the religious leaders and the, the Roman guards. Well, look, verse 39 tells us another group, the unthinkable group. One of the criminals who was hanging, one of the criminals who's hanging next to Jesus is going to throw insults at him. He railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. They are attacking his identity. These are the same attacks, by the way, the devil used to, to attempt Jesus in the wilderness. When the, the devil attempted Jesus in the wilderness, he also said, if you are the son of God, as if he wanted Jesus to prove himself. Who do you think is behind all these attacks? The crowd want Jesus to come off the cross to prove that he is the son of God. If Jesus had come down off the cross, there would be no atonement for sin. Jesus must remain on the cross. He's there voluntarily because of his love and obedience for the Father to ransom you from your sins, to save you and from me. And here Jesus is being tempted again by the crowd. If you are, if you are, if you are, then come down and save yourself. Jesus hangs on the cross and he is not any less powerful than when he was when he calmed the storm. And as he hung on the cross, he's not any less powerful than he was when he cast out the demons or rose people from the dead. Jesus, the all-powerful God who is fully man, is hanging on the cross to take the wrath of God, which was intended for you and me upon himself, that you might be saved, that you might go free, just as Barabbas did physically. And here we're told the next section, the final section, verse 40 through 43, the sinner and the Savior. Both Matthew and Mark record that both criminals were insulting Jesus. Both criminals. So at the very beginning of their time, both criminals were insulting Jesus, but one of the criminals had a change of heart. One of the criminals repented and he turned to Jesus. Here we're told, verse 40, but another one rebuked him. This would be one criminal was rebuking the one who was insulting Jesus. One criminal on his left and one criminal on his right as Jesus hung in the middle. And this was ultimately the Father's design. The Romans didn't do this to Jesus. The Father had planned from the beginning of time that Jesus, the, the very day and the hour and the minute that he would hang on the cross and that he would hang on the, the center cross, the Father determined that. God had ordained every moment of these details. And you can imagine how painful and difficult it was to hang on a cross, but even more painful to breathe. And most people that would die from suffocation because they'd have to push up or pull up with their hands and feet, which have nails in them, to be able to open up their lungs enough to take in air. So to be able to speak was costing you your breath. It was incredibly painful to speak. And here the, the one criminal is using valuable, precious air to insult Jesus. 
He was pushing up in, in incredible pain just to get enough air in his lungs to insult the Son of God. And then the other criminal was pushing up on the cross, which was incredibly painful and expensive for him. The currency was pain. To get enough oxygen to rebuke the other criminal. The crowd was hurling insults, the Roman guards, the criminals. And now look what this one criminal is saying to defend Jesus. He says, do you not fear God since you were under the same sentence of condemnation? He is saying that we're being punished just like Jesus is. But Jesus, he's going to say, didn't do anything wrong, but we're sinners. We deserve this. Look at verse 41. And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. The, one of the writers uses the Greek word for criminal here for these two guys. And the, there's two different words you can use in the Greek for criminal. One is like a, a pickpocket or someone that might break into your house and steal things. There's no violence whatsoever. There's no harm done done to the victim. But the other word that's used here, this is a violent offender. This is someone that will rob you in broad daylight and they will murder you if you have any resistance. They care nothing about life. Both of these criminals fit that description. They were murderers. They were violent offenders. They would kill you just to get your watch or your wallet or your purse. They cared not about your life. They just cared about the things they could take from you. That is their sin. They were murderers. They were thugs. And they were just as violent as Barabbas. These two words uh, identify for us uh, the magnitude of their sin or, or this Greek word. And Jesus tells the story of the good Samaritan. It was that, that kind of offender who hurt the man walking down the street. That he would be robbed in broad daylight and harm was done to him. And look, the thief says here, this, this, this sinner who's hanging on the cross, who's speaking right now, is acknowledging, number one, fear of God. But he has it, and the other one doesn't. Number two, he's confessing that he is a sinner, and that he has done wrongdoing, and that he deserves punishment. And then number three, we're seeing that he's confessing the perfection and righteousness of Jesus, that Jesus has no, done no wrongdoing. Can you see the difference between these two thieves? One is prideful and arrogant and still relying on himself, and the other one is humble and re repenting and turning to Jesus by faith and believing. And here he says, but this man has done nothing wrong. He's acknowledging the perfection of Christ. And he knows that their friend Barabbas was supposed to occupy that spot. Verse 42 tells us, and he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What a profession of faith. What a very unusual time to, to get saved, isn't it? I mean, you're watching Jesus at his most vulnerable moment. He, he's all bloody and, and horrific looking. He's unrecognizable. You could count his bones. Part of his beard was ripped out, the scriptures tell us. The crown was shoved into his scalp. Everyone is throwing insults at him. And now is the time you want to give your life to him? Now is the time you want to believe? What tremendous faith it would take for this man. Jesus gave him the faith to believe. It wasn't during the time that he was feeding the 5,000 or walking on water. It's at this moment. It's never too late to place your faith in Christ until it's too late. This man is moments away from the gates of hell. And Jesus rescued him and gave him the faith to believe that he is the son of God. 43 tells us this, verse 43. And he said to him, Jesus said, truly I say to you, 
Today you will be with me in paradise. There's a a plural you and a, a singular you that's used in Greek. This is not a plural you. He's not speaking to both thieves. He's not saying y'all will be with me in paradise. He's saying you to the one who believes. One of these thieves will be in paradise with Jesus. So he'll be with Christ forever and ever. And the other thief will be perishing into hell forever and ever. Because he rejected Jesus even as he hung on the cross. Which of these thieves is you today? Because we are all one of these thieves. We are all unrighteous, the Bible says. We are all sinners. Are you the one who repented and turned to Christ? Or are you the one who's hard-hearted and you think you don't need Jesus in your life and you will spend an eternity in hell? If you've never repented and turned to Jesus, you can do so today. Jesus promised that man paradise. And when did he promise it to him? Today. And then then shortly after this moment, he will be in paradise. His body will go to the grave, but his soul will go on with Christ. And now I leave you just three quick things to think about today. Three points to ponder that we get from the text. And each week, I want to take this as closely from the text as we do, as we can. That we can apply these principles to our lives. Number one is this. That Jesus was in the middle to magnify his shame, only to be lifted up to magnify his name. Jesus was lowly as you could possibly get, taking the form of a servant and dying a criminal's death on the cross, a place that he didn't deserve to be, but a place that you deserve to be and I deserve to be. Jesus, thinking on the cross, recorded a thousand years prior in Psalm 22, verse 6 tells us this, I am a worm and not a man. That Jesus in that moment as he hung on the cross did not even consider himself to be called a man because he was so beat up. He was taken to such a low position that no man or woman should ever have to face. He says, I am scorned by mankind and despised by the people. Jesus considers himself a, a, a worm. This word, a tola, in the Hebrew language is a really a magnificent word. He calls himself a, a worm or a maggot. It's the lowest form of life that you could see without a magnifying glass. There's not a lower form of life that you could call yourself. This tola has two meanings. One of them means a word, a worm, but the other meaning is crimson color, red like blood. This type of worm was squeezed to death to produce a crimson color that was used to dye fabric. Anything that was colored red or crimson or scarlet in the ancient world, any kind of fabric was colored that way because this type of worm was found and squeezed to get the blood they used as dye to make it the crimson color. Listen as I read from Isaiah, because this word tola is used also in Isaiah chapter 1 verse 18. The scriptures tell us, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be like scarlet, then they, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like tola, crimson, they shall become like wool, white like wool. Jesus hung on the cross like that worm. And when he was squeezed, that red dye, that crimson color came out of him to cleanse you from your sins, to make you white as snow. It was the tola that made it possible for clothing to be dyed red. And that red blood came out of Jesus just like that worm, that you would be set free from your sin. We see this color used also in Joshua chapter 2. When Rahab hung the scarlet cord out of her window, the way that cord was colored scarlet was by the tola worm that was squeezed to get that blood out of it to color it crimson. 
And it was the color of the crimson that saved Rahab and her family. It brought about salvation. So too, the crimson color of the blood of Christ brings salvation to those who will believe in him. Shortly after his resurrection, Jesus ascended into heaven, and now he sits in glory at the right hand of the Father. He was magnified to the highest position from the lowest position. That's our Lord and Savior who has been magnified, exalted, and glorified as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Number two is this. Time is a friend or a foe. And for the criminal who believes the time that he had was a friend because he used the time wisely. But for the other criminal who rejected Jesus and hurled insults at him, time was a foe because he did not use that wisely. Friends, if you use your time wisely in living for Jesus Christ, then it will be your friend. But if you reject Christ and do not surrender your life to him, then time will be your foe. You will not be with Christ in paradise if you reject him. Third and finally, we'll wrap up with this, is that God can be trusted in the tragedy. Because when Jesus hung on the cross and people were hurling insults at him, it's very tempting to say, Lord, why don't you do something? But the reality was Jesus was doing more than we could ever imagine, even though it looked like he wasn't doing anything. He was saving us from our sins. He was taking the wrath deserved for you and me upon himself. And and regardless of what the situation is, there's going to be times in your life where it looks like the Lord isn't doing anything in your life. It may look like he's being very silent, but it's in the times of tragedy when the Lord is doing something magnificent. And just because you don't see him moving or hear him speaking, it's not because he isn't doing something. You've got to believe he's doing something great. And everything the Lord does, he's doing for the Father. He's doing for his own glory. Everything the Father does, he does to the glory for the Son. When Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He said that. And he went through that experience so that we could say, my God, my God, how can we be considered your children? Jesus' death has reconciled us to the Father. And forgiveness here is a major theme that we see in this passage. Salvation is a major theme. If you haven't come to Christ yet, if you haven't placed your faith in him, I hope the Spirit will lead you there today. And for the rest of us as believers, who do you need to forgive today? Jesus models for us forgiveness. What person is the Lord putting on your heart right here and right now? The Holy Spirit is speaking to you, I believe it. Friends, we see uh, and read these amazing stories of revival. And so many people say they want revival, but revival starts in your heart and my heart, and it moves out from there. Revival starts in our hearts individually through the confession of sin. And if we want revival in our land, it's got to start in our homes. It's got to start in our hearts. And I'm going to close us out now in prayer. And if there's any sin that you want to confess before the Lord, I want to give us a moment to do that because revival starts with confession of sin. It starts with getting right with God. And maybe you've drifted off. I don't know where all of you are spiritually, but maybe you've wandered off. And now the Lord wants you to come back to him. It's through the confession of sin and forgiving other people that revival will start. Let's pray right now. Let's pray for revival that it will start in your heart and my heart. And then it was spread out from there. Father, we, we want revival in our land, and we know it starts in us individually. And then it must start in us corporately. And Father, I want to pause for just a moment right now and pray for a, con- a time of confession of sin for each of us right where we're seated, that the Lord would put those uh, ideas of what that sin is in our heart and mind, convict us, 
that we would confess that to you right now. Any sin in your home, any private sin that only you know about, but the Lord knows. Any sin in your workplace or your school or your classroom. Any sin in your marriage, relationships. Any sin among brothers and sisters in the church. Father, we pray that you would give us the ability to forgive other people as Christ did. And I want to pause for just a moment and give each of us a chance to examine our hearts and minds to see if there's anyone that we're holding back forgiveness for, that we would give them forgiveness as Jesus empowers us to do so. Maybe that person could be someone close to you, a spouse or a parent or a child, Lord. Give us the ability to forgive them. Or a family member who's wronged us in the past. Or a coworker or a supervisor. Father, we lift up our confession to you this morning. We lift up our hearts to, that we could forgive others to honor you. Lord, we pray for continued revival and all throughout our land as we see starting off in Kentucky, Father. Let it start in our homes and spread throughout our church and spread throughout Raleigh and the rest of our country. Let your spirit move, convicting us of our sin and drawing us closer to you. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.